House of Rugby Ireland here on Joe, together with Guinness. Game changed. Hello and welcome to House of Rugby Ireland here on Joe, together with Guinness. I'm Emer Constantine and I am joined, as always, with by Ian Madigan, Ireland and Ulster out half. Ian, this is episode eight of our season so far this year. Um, we've had 12 episodes in total, including our bonus episode. We've had some amazing guests on the show, the likes of Nigel Owens, Hugo Manye, Brian O'Driscoll, Sean Cronin, Seninaupu, Shane Williams, Mike Brown, CJ Stander. You had Jordy Murphy on last week with Freddie Burns and last week we had Dan Leo on as well, the former Simone International. What a guy he was. Um, some lineup of names there, isn't it? Yeah, it's been really enjoyable. I think probably the biggest telling of that is how quickly it's gone by. Like, literally, they've flown by, which is always a good sign that, that you're enjoying the process of it. Um, so thanks to all the listeners who've been listening in and, and for all the, the, the kind words and support that we've got. And we hope that you enjoy the show and we'll continue to enjoy it going forward. Absolutely. And if you did happen to miss any of those amazing guests, um, it's worth checking it out on the House of Rugby podcast. You know, it's up on YouTube and on the podcast systems as well. So... This week, we are going to be joined by Springbok legend, Alliance Test Series and World Cup winner and former World Rugby Player of the Year, Skalk Berger. So we're really looking forward to talking to him later on in the show. However, first up, we'll chat about the Autumn Nation. So it has come to an end and Ireland played Scotland at the weekend. And I suppose we can take some positives out of that game and out of that win, Ian. Yeah, certainly. You know, the game started off, it was challenging enough. Scotland had loads of momentum at the start, but Ireland hung in there and, and were only, I think, six points down and it could easily have been 15 or, or 20 if Ireland had lost their head. There was a lot of pressure on them going into the game. Obviously, the, the second half of the Georgian game was, was disappointing. Um, came off the back of a loss against England and, you know, there was a lot of expectation that Ireland had to go out and win and win well. Um, and to go behind early, definitely put pressure on them but they didn't lose their heads and you know we've been talking a lot about what they've been doing in training that hasn't quite clicked in games but I think we can take huge confidence from the you know the last 50 minutes of the game um, and looking forward to the Six Nations you, you definitely think that that's you know something that they can really build on um, going into that first game in, in, in Cardiff um, against Wales. Absolutely Um you know, we have to be positive and look at what they did well. However, they started pretty slowly and we have to face it that they've had a pretty good record against Scotland in the last few years. You know, I think in the last five games, they've got five wins out of five against Scotland. Um, Eddie O'Sullivan slated Scotland, you know, saying that they were almost, you know, more, they, they shouldn't be as positive as they are and that Scotland actually aren't as good as they think they are. Um, so was that win, you know, are we giving Ireland more praise than we should be considering they're playing against a Scottish team that probably aren't as as strong as we think they are? Yeah, I, I think playing at home will back ourselves against anyone. And, you know, Scotland aren't at the top table with the likes of France, England, even New Zealand, South Africa, Australia, Argentina. You know, they're, they're probably the second tier down from that. But they're a very competitive side. They beat Wales away recently, which is a really good result. They beat France last, last year, which was, you know, we've, we've all seen how good the French are in the last, in the last 12, 12 months. Um, I think key guys missing for them definitely affects them. The likes of Finn Russell adds a huge amount. Um, but they're a very well coached side and, and, you know, they bring great physicality. Like, I, I guarantee that those Irish lads were good and sore today after that game. They didn't know that they were in a real rugby match. And, um, you know, they, they ultimately they pulled away in the last quarter. But it was, that was a tight game. And, and I think any side that, that goes out and beats, beats it, Scotland in an international knows all about it. Yeah, it's never an easy win against them. You're right. Um, I suppose one thing that we can, as a nation, take from the the autumn nations was the amount of young, new new players, new caps, um, guys that were given the experience to play against the likes of Georgia or against Scotland or against Italy. You know, games that, yes, it's it's a, an important series and it's good to get games under your belt, but it isn't at the end of the day the Guinness Six Nations. It's you know it's it's, it's effectively just you know warm up games and. That's one positive is that there was a lot of really good young players making their mark and stamping their mark down on on an Irish jersey. Yeah, certainly. And it's the first time that we've seen the coaches' selection over, you know, a number of weeks. And you kind of get to get an idea of who they really like. And the biggest tell of that is always selection. You know, words might be said in the media, 
that are complementary. But ultimately, if the guy isn't getting picked, you get you figure out quite quickly what the coach is actually thinking of him. And you can see there with the likes of Hugo Keenan, Kalen Doris, um, Bundy Aki got lots of game time. Porter again got a huge amount of game time. You know, you know, three of the four of them are all younger guys: Porter, Doris, um, and Ke- and Keenan. And you can see how how much they grew throughout the, this series. And there's no doubt that they'll be an integral part of the of the Irish team going forward um, into the Six Nations. I suppose some of it is just about timing. Like, would Keenan have been in there if Larmer was fit and, and injury-free? Would Bundy have been starting if, you know, Ringrose had been injured up until the last game and, Hensh- and Henshaw, or sorry, Henshaw had been injured up until the last game and obviously Ringrose out injured as well? So we've had quite a, meant, quite a lot of injuries. And I suppose the guys that stood up, like Hugo Keenan and like Bundy, and, you know, they've, they've put their mark on the jersey. And I'm, I'm glad to see that they have taken the opportunity and not shied away from the the challenge, really, of playing for Ireland. Yeah, absolutely. The injuries are part of the game and a big battle is, is keeping yourself fit. But, you know, when a coach is looking to pick the team, the first thing he's going to look at is who, who's fit and who's injured. And there's no chance of the injured guys getting picked. And ultimately, it's about the other guys stepping up and taking their opportunity. So when the other guy gets back from, from his injury, that it makes a really tough decision for the coach to make to put him back into the side. And, I definitely think, you know, someone like Caelan Doris has, has probably nailed down a spot in that back row now that, that you wouldn't have taught probably at the start of the season. Um, and similar, like Hugo Keenan's been, been great at the back. I'm, I'm sure you've been very impressed with, with him over the, the, the number of games. You know, Jacob's got his opportunity at 15 now and it's probably going to take a few big performances from someone for them to look at something else because he's in there now. He's got the experience. The guys are used to playing with him around him. Um, so no, it is. It has been very interesting, you know, in that sense with selection and seeing who's really stepped up to the mark. Yeah, I think with Jacob as well, he got quite a lot of stick that first game. Wasn't it the first game where he, you know, had a, quite a few drop balls, got turned over quite a bit, knocked balls on the, the try and everything. Um, but I think he's found his place in there at full back. You know, he's grown into the he's grown into the position, and it's these. That's why games like these are so important. That. It gives you opportunities to play at this high level, under pressure, in a high pressure situation against the best in the world. And um, he hadn't, I suppose, bar playing with Ulster this year in the Guinness Pro 14, he hadn't actually quite a lot of experience playing at 15. So that experience that he got throughout the Autumn Nations is invaluable to him and so many other guys on the field. Like you said, Caelan Doris um, was a two man of the match performances he got throughout this Autumn Nations, maybe three, I'm not sure exactly, but someone of his age to stand up to that, you know, it's it's phenomenal what he what he's doing and what he has done in the last few weeks and to to start in a competitive back row with the likes of Peter Mahoney, Will Connors, CJ Stander, um, you know, Jack Owen was there, you know, there's so many guys that could be there and we, we're constantly talking about the competition in the back row. Josh Randerfleer, another one, you know, it's it's so competitive and he really did make a mark on the campaign. Um there's so many guys too that have to come in for the Guinness Six Nations, you know, like Tyke Furlong's been injured, Larmer might be back from his injury. You know, there's there's so many other guys that will be fighting for a position come January when they're back in camp again. Yeah, certainly. Like just on your on your your points about Jacob, I couldn't agree with you anymore. You know, he's he's definitely grown into it in in the in the the last few games. It was definitely a tough day for him against France, and maybe the first to say that himself, but. I think as well, we've got to look back and, and, and see what's, you know, what's come before him. And, you know, Rob set incredibly high standards there. Um, he was rock solid at the back, probably the best in the world under the high ball. Um, you know, Jacob's come in now and he's, he's aspiring to be as good as, as Rob was in the air and, and covering the backfield, but he'll definitely offer, um, more in other areas. And we've got to be appreciative of that. If he drops the odd high ball, you know, maybe what he's offering us with his carry game, uh, people will start to see, you know, the positives that that gives to the team. And I, I thought that was a huge part of what he did against Scotland at the weekend. You know, his ability to find soft shoulders, keep pumping his legs, create fastball and, you know, create soft edges for the, for the team. I thought was was huge for, for when it started to click for Ireland. And, you know, he'll, he'll certainly be a big, big part of... Um, what we'll be doing over the next few weeks in Ulster and, and leading on to the Six Nations for Ireland. Absolutely. And I suppose chatting about the Guinness Six Nations, you know, if they get that first win against Wales, you know, that will that'll be a great start. And it's all about momentum when it comes to games like these. 
Yeah, certainly. You Wales haven't been, uh, you know, hitting their stripes over the last few weeks. You know, even the Italian game at the weekend, it was it was very close con- contest up to about sixty minutes, and then ultimately the Welsh pulled away in the last twenty. But for a period of time, it looked like the Italians might actually get on top of them and get a win. Um, they. <laughs> They're definitely a side in transition. It hasn't clicked yet with the new coach, so it'll be interesting to see what the next few months brings there, you know, how much they get to, to bring everyone together in camp. Um, even whether the supporters or not is a big part of, of what's going to happen in, in the Millennium Stadium. You know, Wales with a full um, Millennium Stadium is, is a very different proposition to playing playing them without any supporters there. Um but no, look, I think it, it's important for, for, for Ireland that we don't look past that first game. You know, obviously, you win that, it tees up everything from uh, a triple crown to a grand slam. If you lose that, you're very much behind the eight ball and then you're, you're going into play, I think it's France in the second game. So, um, look, they'll be under no illusions, but that, that will be a tough, tough challenge. And I'm sure we will chat about the Guinness Six Nations a lot more between now and then. There's quite a lot of rugby to be played between now and then. Um, so we'll be back with Shock Burger in part two. House of Rugby Ireland. Tell us what you think by comment and rating us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts. We had Victor Matfield and John de Villiers on the show earlier on this year and we are delighted to welcome another Springbok legend in Scott Berger. Uh, former World Player of the Year, um, Lions Series winner and also World Cup winner. So Scott, do you ever get sick of, of a, an accolade like, like that? No, I don't think you do. You know, obviously, once you retire, you become so much, much better. So, like, I've only recently retired, just over a year now. So, I'm not as good as some of my counterparts that's been on here. But there's a good South African contingent. And I guess they got the same warm welcome that I got. So, thank you very much. Absolutely. You're showing us some beautiful views there over in a very sunny South Africa. A lot different to the weather we have here in Ireland today. No, I'm not envious of you guys whatsoever, um, but it's beautiful down here. Another tough day in Africa. This is uh, the southern of, the, of my left shoulder here. This is uh, that's Newland Ravine you're looking at. So you know it's the southern suburb side of Table Mountain. Um, so you guess where I'm at? I'm close to uh, Newlands Rugby Stadium. That's where I live. So awesome this side. And I mean, I saw some photos of what you guys were playing rugby in today. So uh, no, I'd rather be. I'm here in my board shorts and my short hat on, been in the swimming pool, been on the beach this morning, so <laughs> sorry to, to spoil your weather for you, but it's been awesome, yeah. and we're ready for summer holidays, so can't wait. Sounds good. Shkalk, what have you been up to since you retired from rugby? Um, obviously, taking in the good weather at the moment, what kind of, have you, have you stayed in touch with the rugby world, or have you taken a break completely and stepped back from it? Yeah, I actually was planning on having like a year sabbatical, so finished uh, June last year at Saracens. Uh, obviously, our, our season ended up with massive success and came back to South Africa. First thing I had is because I came back with two South African boys that was completely, you know, English. They were poms. So first thing <laughs> I did is take, <laughs> took them through Africa, you know, let them catch their first fish, you know, let them pull a, a, a shot off on a rifle, trying to deep palm them and get them more South African because before they go to school. So I did a, a full trip, a trip through Namibia, you know, about three, what were we, three, four weeks about six and a half thousand kilometers, got back, settled in our house that was rented out for five years since we were gallivanting around. And then uh, I got an unexpected call to do some punditry for Supersports. So uh, they got me on board and obviously it was um, quite nice to be a part of, you know, the punditry team to do the World Cup where South Africa won. And it's much easier relaying a message to South Africa when the Springboks win the World Cup to when it is they lose in a final. Um, uh, and I've carried on with that, um, and I've joined one of my very good friends in the property business. So he's sort of taken me under the under the wing. Um, had a lot to learn this year. This year wasn't easy for business as a whole, especially in the property business. And then me and John De Villiers started a little you know, TV show called Use It or Lose It. We've got about 25 uh, followers at present. I think it is maybe 26. Um, so please follow us if you do. Yeah, we'd like to get up to 30 before the end of the year. So if any of our listeners want to give them a follow, they might get up to 30 by the end of today's podcast. Um, you started off, I suppose, your father, Schalkeberger, also, I suppose you had that pressure of growing up with that name. Did you ever find it hard to live up to the reputation that he he had or, or the path that he had paved for you? 
Yeah, so obviously my old band played um, yeah, a long time at Western Province, also at a stint in the Eastern Province, and then back to Western Province, but also played for the box. Uh, so whenever that happens in South Africa, you know, rugby mad country, there is, is a certain amount of pressure. But I think I was the right personality for it. You know, I was sort of always daydreaming as a kid, you know, like in my own little bubble, so to speak. So when it came down to playing rugby, you sort of just pitched up and did it. You know, my first love actually at school was cricket. So I finished with a cricket contract. Um, so, you know, I was, I was talented at both as rugby as a cricketer, but like cricket accolades just came a bit faster when I was younger. It was only in my second year where I swapped to rugby, so swapped to pro rugby, and then, you know, that was quite an exciting time for me. But, yeah, I, I guess, you know, one thing it does help you is to, to prepare for certain, you know, big moments, you know, having a dad that's already been there, so in the, especially in the beginning of my career, it was quite nice to have him as a sounding board. Um, and then later on, you sort of just follow your own head and, you know, make a few mistakes along the way, but, you know... Um, yeah, it's awesome in South Africa. We had quite a few few players, like Ruan Pina, for example. You guys would know him well. His dad, Casey Pina, played with my dad in, in the mid-80s, early mid to mid-80s. We had uh, John de Villiers, old man. He played lock, actually, for Western Province with my dad in the beginning of my dad's career. Um, so there's quite a few second-generation rugby players coming through in South Africa. So it must have something to do with it. Did you ever feel pressured to choose rugby or did it happen naturally? I know you said obviously cricket and rugby were your two sports, but was there ever a pressure? Because obviously, you know, you're almost expected to play rugby if your father is, you know, has a name like he has. I reckon if I came out like, you know, five foot four, really fast, no one no one probably would have said he's got to be a rugby player. But because you come out six foot four and you weigh 110 kilograms, you know, everyone's going to go, He's a rugby player. Yeah. You know? So it sort of adds to to the hype. And then, obviously, I love rugby. Yeah, yeah, just as much, much as cricket. So um, always you know, played a certain style. Just, you know, wanted to touch the ball, wanted to get stuck in. So, uh, you know, once you start throwing yourself around in South Africa, you know, everyone's going like, oh, he's going to play rugby big time. But then it's so hard to make in South Africa. We've got so much talent, you know, so, so much talent. And I think especially... Now, where so many players are based overseas, I just saw the Scotland spreadsheet score sheet, and it was Duan van der Merwe scoring a try and Jakub van der Valt kicking all the conversions. You know, that doesn't sound Scottish, does it? So, I mean, <laughs> there's all South Africans playing all abroad, and and I think we just showcases how much talent we've got. So, even when I started out, you know, made the swap from cricket to rugby, you never once, you know, firstly think actually you're good enough. And secondly, there's so many good players in and around your age group, let alone the senior players involved, that you're actually going to get a chance. And then luckily for me, I've got, you know, uh, you know, a few lucky breaks, you know, through players being injured. And then all of a sudden you get a chance. And, you know, before you knew it, you played 20, 30, 40 test matches. And the players that was probably better than you at an age grade level just, you know, lacked on experience and you had a head start. Um, and for that, you know, obviously some of it's got to do with me because, you know, you can't just you know, get a test cap for the box and sort of think you're going to get another one. You know, you never incumbent, you never own the jersey. You know, you're just a custodian of a jersey that's going to live after long after you finish. So um, once I got, you know, my foot in, you know, I wanted to play more. Uh, and then all of a sudden through experience, you just become so much better than, you know, your peers at the time. Uh, Skull, can you talk about... Um... When you talk about like showcasing South African talent, um, there's been a fair bit of talk and, and excitement about some of the super sides joining. Has there been much talk or excitement about it in South Africa? I think, you know, it's it's twofold. So first of all, I think when we speak about super rugby and when we reminisce about super rugby, we reminisce about the old super rugby where everyone chewed in, you know, the super 12, you know, the one we started playing in when I was younger the best competition in the world, run for three months, best players in the world on showcase, you know, started in February and, and ended, you know, in May. Um, of late, Super Rugby, I think, sort of lost its way. You know, we expanded to 18 teams, Super 18. We also, you know, started running over eight months. You know, we cut it down to Super 15. And I think, you know, the catalyst of all of this was obviously COVID, where we had to cancel the tournament through, obviously, the tough travel schedules. But I think over the years, what's happened down, it's, it's become a bit of a watered-down um, tournament through South African sides, obviously having so many players playing abroad. You know, the Kiwi sides are very strong. Um, we all know Australia's got some rugby struggles, especially in their franchise rugby. Um, Argentina has done um, reasonably well. And the Japan side, that could never really access their best players. So 
I think they lost the, you know, they lost the fan. They lost the crowd. The guys find it too complicated to follow, too much travel in between, too much time off. If you in Sydney, for example, and they all share the same stadium, this, the SFS Sydney Football Stadium, and if you can watch a rugby league team there for eight months in a row, pretty much every other weekend, you know, Waratahs can play the one week and then two months later they can play there again. So it's quite hard to follow as a fan because we all, you know, we're creatures of habit. You want to go to your stadium, you want to watch it. Um, so I think South Africa is ready for a change and it's coming to the north and I think it's going to be massively exciting. It's going to be a new challenge. Obviously, we play a certain style. So for all of you guys, it will be exposure to how we as South Africans play. And also for us as South Africans, I think we're quite excited about breaking the mold, you know, breaking the stigma about super rugby or super touch as it's often referred to and actually playing in your conditioning, in your conditions. Obviously, I think our strengths as South Africans are in our athletes and our physical, we can be our set piece, all things we pride ourselves on. And I think it's going to be exciting to see us move to the north and see how we adapt because it's going to be an adaptation for our players to travel across, play different times of the year. Same for you guys coming to, you know, some warm places, especially in summer, Durban, you know, Cape Town's all right. You know, we buy the ocean, we get this cooling breeze at night. Pretoria is a hard place to play. Front, um, um, the old Gauteng, front, um, the Lions, super, super hard place to play. So I think whenever there's a change, there comes excitement with it. It's just, you know, how do we actually do this? How do we get it right? And how do we build excitement? Because us as South Africans are ready for the move. No, certainly it's really exciting. Yeah, really exciting our end. And I think um, if you look at how the league has gone in the, la- in the last eight weeks, you know, the Irish sides have dominated it. Um, now, I know some of the other teams have, have missed their, their internationals and that's hurt them hard. But going forward, having the four super sides in from South Africa, I think would make the competition far more competitive. Um, like Obviously, you've played in both the Premiership and you've played in, in, in Super Rugby. How, how do you think the super teams would, would fare if they're in the Premiership or you know, comparing to the product that you played in, in the UK? I think the premier that I played in two different phases of my career. So one I played obviously when I was younger and then older in the premiership. But I think they actually quite similar in certain ways where they're so competitive. So Super 12 for me was the most competitive competition in the world. By that I mean from bottom to top, there was not much in the teams. You know, whether you finish sixth on the log, first or 12th, it's so tight. And I think the premiership had that same feeling where all the teams are so competitive. Yes, maybe towards the end of the season when one team sort of had a few injuries and you know they, they sort of resigned to the fact that they might be relegated. Yes, then you can roll them over. But certainly not the case for the first eight months of the year. It's so competitive. And I think you know South African teams will bring that depth to pro rugby. You know, I don't think there's often going to be a case where they're going to roll over as easily as, say, maybe a team that's depleted through numbers. So it is hard. It's going to be hard for us to go there and put four good teams because we have got a massive group of players every year leaving to play in the north or playing in Japan. I think from the World Cup squad that won it, you know, 33, if you take Trevor Nakani and Jesse Crew was injured, already 18 of them is based abroad. So only, you know, only the rest is stuck here. So we do lose a lot of players, and I think this will increase with the exposure they will get in the north. But still, I think we've got so much talent on on display yeah, and we produce so much talent year on year that I think they'll be very, very competitive and that's always good for a competition. I think so. I think the Guinness Pro 14 has, has been in the last few weeks slightly, I think people have lost a little bit of interest in it because, you know, the Irish teams are dominating it so much and the Autumn Nations Cup has, I suppose, been the reason that that's been the case. You know, the Italy teams, the Italian teams have, have really been, you know, finding it really difficult and especially the Scottish teams as well, you know, with their internationals away. So I think it will add a bit of interest and a bit of, you know, people will be eager to tune in to these games because it's something different. It's, it's unexpected and we don't know what the South Africans will bring, but we do know that they will bring a different style of rugby and a different style of physicality that I think spectators will be really excited to see. But I guess it's competition, right? So whenever there's good competition, everyone tunes in to watch it. If you look Formula One at the moment, like you've got Mercedes dominating it, it sort of gets stale after a while. And I think Super Rugby went the same way with 
you know, all the All Black sides dominating, New Zealand teams dominating, dominating it for so long. You know, we need to, as South Africans, get across there and actually make a big impact. You know, the Irish sides are so strong, well-managed, a lot of depth, a lot of international players, big squads. We've got smaller squads, but like we'll we'll get across there and be itching to sink our teeth into this new competition. So, yeah, hopefully for us, you know, we can come across there and have at least two of the four teams super competitive in the first year, and then hopefully build on our depth to get four competitive sides. Because that was always our issue in Super Rugby. We always had one or two teams that was up there for long periods of time, and then in between that, we had some teams battling to actually be competitive at Super Rugby, especially towards the end of it. So um, I can see that the Bulls are going really well in the Curry Cup. That they'll obviously be one of the, the, the two stronger sides that you, that you were talking about. Who else do you think can really really compete in the, the Guinness Pro 14? Well, I think the Bulls will be the stronger suit. Um, they've got Jake White in there. They've got a nice blend of between a lot of new youngsters playing really exciting, nice rugby. But then they've also got like Mornay Stain sort of marshalling the troops, Dwayne Vermeil and... Um, and I just think, you know, they are on the right path. You know, they've got a lot of talent there. It's a strong, traditional stronghold of South African rugby up there in Pretoria. Uh, I think it will really suit the style they play. They, they play reasonably conservative, um, solid set piece. But then also they've got an ability to crack the game open through, you know, transition turnovers. So they've been by far the best team, look the most professional outfit at the moment. Then there's a lot of talent down in Cape Town, where I'm from. Um, unfortunately, you know, we've had some boardroom issues here, down there, Western Province. We're moving away from Newlands. We're moving to a new stadium. Cape Town Stadium was a phenomenal venue, by the way. Um, everyone will thoroughly enjoy going there. But, like, they've got some issues behind closed doors. Lions, I think, not so much. Eh? So, I'm going to go... Um, Sharks has got a lot of talent, and I think they'll be hard to beat in Durban. Not abroad. So Bulls, Stormers will be my favorite pick to really make it tough for you guys. Also, the Stormers has got one of the best packs of forwards um, for every cl- any club side. So if they can keep them together, they'll be competitive. Um, yeah, but Bulls, far and away the best side we've got. So, Scott, that links in really well to our Guinness House of Rugby Hall of Fame section. And this week we asked our followers on Twitter if they had any good questions for you and Pat Curran asked if Schalke was in favour of the South African Super Rugby franchises joining the Guinness Pro 14 and how he thinks they get on. So you've almost answered that but if you were to sum that up again just for Pat Curran um, who's newly welcomed into the Guinness House of Rugby Hall of Fame um, give us a short answer on, on how you think they'll go. Yeah Pat I'm, I'm definitely if I already, but I'm in favour of it. I think it's a good change for us as South Africans to go up north. One travel, one timeline. Um, we can all watch all the games. We don't have to wake up early, early mornings to watch You know, the Stormers play in Dunedin, uh, which is 11-hour time difference. So, yeah, we're all in favour. And we're also re- ready for a change. You know, it's uh, it's time for us to go up north and see if we can be competitive. Maybe for us is a big reality check. I think we will be competitive. I don't think we'll get success immediately because if you think of our Super Rugby careers, us as South African took a while before we started getting success. So I think it'll be hard for us, especially the weather change from South Africa where it's quite easy, especially tactically and also technically. Our players will have to improve to be competitive in worse conditions like in, in the UK, especially this time of the year. Uh, so I think it will take us a while, but I think we're going to have at least two very competitive sides every year. I think Ian is also delighted too that he'll get a few trips to South Africa in the coming years. <laughs> I know, especially Cape, especially Cape Town. If all the boys are throffing. I mean, please just don't, when you go to any zoo, just don't put your hand into the lion cage. I mean, the cage. <laughs> That's how you get yourself into trouble. You should be almost telling him to do it in that for to hurt the opposition teams. <laughs> I wouldn't mind going over to South Africa and just camping up, stay like end the season tour there, roll into the summer. There'd be nothing better. Yeah, if you just schedule it so that you have a South African team for the last game of season, so that you can just stay on, be very nice, very nice. Oh, that, that would be the ideal. Skalk, you um, you won World Rugby Player of the Year. At just 21 years of age, were you just a year into your season with the with the Springboks? That 
that must have been amazing to start your career off in in such a manner. Yeah, I mean, if you think back now, it's a little bit crazy at the time. You know, these things sort of just happened, you know. I, I played, made my debut in 03 at the 2003 Rugby World Cup. And I remember I was nominated to be one of the yeah, under-21 rugby players of the year. And Bennett Tinga uh, won at the same age as me, but he also went to 2003 Rugby World Cup. And we were actually sitting at the same table. And obviously, Johnny Wilkinson won it. And both of us were sitting there having a few beers thinking, Oof, it'll be cool to win this one yet, one day. And I mean, 12 months later, there was I you know, picking it up. Uh, so crazy. Uh, I mean, we had we didn't have a good 2003. Um, me and Jacques Ferry was two of the youngsters, sort of, you know, made it through. We had that horrible um, camp before the World Cup. We weren't playing well. We had no chance in winning the World Cup. And then oh, Jake White came in. And we had a lot of success with him at junior levels. You know, we won in 2002 we won um, you know the junior world cup and he took a lot of guys from the 98 group john smith and that was sort of the basis of the team it was 98 and 2002 and then brought back some older men you know brought back osterant and percy montgomery from abroad or also off the farm actually and percy from abroad and then uh, he told me i'm going to start you know i'm starting open side of in early on in the year I said listen you get yourself playing well and you're going to start and we started playing against Ireland actually as my first start up in Bloemfontein uh, we got a nice win there and then came down to Cape Town and uh, I was obviously so pumped for the game you know playing at my home stadium I grew up on the stadium watching my dad do captain's run here now I'm starting a test match for the box against Ireland um, and you're never going to play poorly eh? 50,000 people down in Cape Town and got a man of the match performance and that sort of set the tone for the rest of the year. and when you're that young and you're playing well you know, it feels like you can't do no wrong. You just carry on playing. I got a little few. I you know, got a little bit carried away, as I do often did in my career, and got a few yellow cards towards the end of the season. One against Ireland was harsh, though. It was very harsh at the old Lansdowne Road. And I got another one. Uh, I got another one for putting a harsh shot on Colin Chavez, which also hard. Yeah, I mean, I mean, just his hair. You know, it was going everywhere. His head. <laughs> Um, but besides that, it was a cracking year, and then obviously, you know, to tap it off with all the accolades, you know, that was a little bit overwhelming at that age, at 21. Uh, but what it does do, though, is just frees you up to go and play some more rugby, uh, and that's the way I always saw it, you know. I've always just wanted to enjoy the game. That was my main focus. Um, so I always think I had a nice perspective, but definitely achieving a lot when you're young, you know, it does free you up and does relax you, but just to have a crack. It sounds like the, the perfect start almost to your career and I'm glad that Ireland has some good memories as well that um, your, your first cap and that man of the match performance. Not that we're too happy about that, but it's a, nice, it's a nice start for you anyway. However, not long after that, very early on into your career, you got a really bad injury. Did you think it would be career-threatening or was it as bad as you expected? What was, what was injured and how long did the initial rehab take? Yeah, so it was 2006 uh, against Scotland. Uh, so we played the first test match uh, up in Durban and then went down to Port Elizabeth to play the second test match. I can remember, it was like me and John Smith trying to tackle some bloke. Uh, I don't know, at that stage, you know, just flying around. So I wanted to smash someone. And before I got to him, John got to him. So instead of me tackling with my shoulder, I actually hit him with the head. And, you know, what transpired after that is like I finished the game got back one o'clock and just started feeling horrendous, you know, um, neck pain, you know, can't move, sort of stuck in this position, went to the doctor's room, next morning scanned in Port Elizabeth um, and then flew down to Cape Town and when I got to Cape Town they obviously had the results of the scan and I basically, with that impact, you know, burst um, the disc, so I had a prolapse of the disc um, and that was sort of scary back then, no one really had neck fusions. You know, it wasn't a done thing. Um, obviously, with neck fusions, there can be complications. My biggest issue was, like, because there was so much fluid pushing down on the nerve, I sort of lost all strength on my left arm. And to this day, I've got no feeling in these two fingers, although I've got strength. They're completely numb. Um, and that's the first time where you sort of get a reality check, where you think, okay, hold on, you know, I'm not invincible. I've been flying around for four years now. And the bigger, at that stage, the bigger risk you take, the more accolades you get, you know, the bigger the better is the outcome. And there's the first time where you sort of think, okay, hold on, you know, I'm mortal, I'm human, yeah, I'm just another bloke trying to play rugby. And I think, um, you know, 
you're young and you crack on. And luckily for me, in the first game I came back, it was actually a warm-up game against the Bulls. I was out for, what's it, seven months. Came back. I know like the turnaround times now is crazy fast. I think they can play in four months. But back then, we were quite conservative. And the first guy I had to tackle was Donnie Rousseau, big old Donnie Rousseau. And he ran at me. I put a shot on him, and I didn't feel anything. I was like, okay, I'm all right. I can crack on with this, you know, because if you can tackle Donnie Rousseau, you pretty much can tackle anything. You can tackle a bus. Um, so, um, and then, then you started playing, but then I also realized that, you know, you've got to improve your game on other areas, you know, you've got to evolve because if I'm going to be flying around like this, you know, I'm not going to have longevity out the game, you know, so then we started working on a few other things, you know, a few line-out skills, a few kickoff skills, a few different things, um, just to try and evolve your game. And it took a long time to actually improve it, but, you know, we got there in the end. What elements of your game did you work on specifically to try and improve? So, like, back then in South Africa, we were very one-dimensional, especially. Um, and I always tried to, like, you know, I always believed, like, in passing forwards. You know, you watch the Kiwi sides, and they were, when we were younger, like, they also had a lot of width through their structure they played. And they, they had long passes and big backs. That was pretty much the difference between them and anyone else. But obviously, we as South Africans were quite physical and imposing, so we could match up to their physicality. And then they had to find another point of difference, and that came through their structure in close quarters through passing forwards. Um, and like watching this Autumn Nations Cup now, there's lovely touches by forwards, and it's all through the structure that was created. So like I just started working on, on passing tip-ons, out-the-backs. Um, it just took a while for a structure to fall in place, and that structure came when Eddie Jones joined us in 2007 as a tacking consultant. So all of a sudden, we had a little structure in and around, and by that stage... You know, I had a bit of a head start on the rest of the boys because, you know, I played cricket, so I did, did have a decent skill set. But now all of a sudden there was a structure where I could sort of express, you know, little short passes, you know, little stuff out the back. So, you know, once that came, then all of a sudden it looked like my game sort of changed overnight. It didn't. There was just a structure in place. Um, but, like, I really enjoyed the finest stuff of it, you know, like kickoffs, for example. You know, even when I joined Saracens, you know, we, we started a little kickoff challenge, you know, and I absolutely loved taking kickoffs, you know, all, the, all those little things. Things I hated was cleaning rucks and practicing <laughs> how to tackle and scrum and mauls. You know, that all, all, because all that, all that is is just guts, you know. It's like chuck your heart on the table, check how hard you are. But the finest stuff, I really enjoyed. I, I really enjoyed trading that. But don't ask me to clean a ruck. I cleaned enough. You're talking to two backs here who completely agree with you, so that's fine. <laughs> I know. I know. You guys, I mean, I wish I wish I was a bit nimbler. My second life, I'm going to come back in a smaller, nimbler, a little bit of a faster frame and wear a big digit on the back. But unfortunately, that wasn't for me to have. It wasn't. So after working on yourself and I suppose working on those, not weaknesses, but you changed your game, I suppose, based on that injury and to, to better your performances. And you, you got picked for that 2004, 2000, and the next World Cup but you ended up getting a four-match ban, which was then reduced down to a two-match ban. So that's not an ideal start after yeah, coming oh, back from injury. So, yeah, so I said, well, I mean, it's probably a trend through my career. Like you, I sort of overstepped the boundary a few times. But in 07, uh, yeah, we had a good build-up. And, you know, it was one of those things where we truly believed that we could obviously win a World Cup, although winning a World Cup's a lot harder than than I think anyone can describe. Otherwise, New Zealand would probably have won it five times by now, and they've only won it three times. You know, it's a tough thing to do, and you need a lot of stuff going away, and for sure we had a lot of luck, but we also, I guess, was the form team at that World Cup. We played some phenomenal rugby, and I think case in point was our pool game against England, you know, the 36-0 game where we just put on perfect rugby performance the way we wanted to play. South Africans needed to play, and that's important for us. Because we are unique in that space, you know, we play a little bit differently. Um, but yeah, we played against Samoa, and I can just remember the game being so fiery, you know, so worked up. And I, I, I guess five minutes into the game, and Butchie James was fluff, and he doesn't shirk away from any contact. But we were lining up, and we were lining up quite wide on defence. We had this little up and in thing we're doing, like quite a lot of line speed. And opposite me was Henry Tuolagi. Now, if I tell you this bloke was wider than he was tall. He was probably twice as wide as he was tall, weighing probably 145 kgs. And he was like the lineup trigger. So it was on the halfway and he was lined up on the 22. And when he started chugging, the lineup ball came. So Butchie was basically lined up 15 meters wide and he was, there's no way I'm tackling this. There's no way, Skark, it's all yours. Let's leave him the gap and then maybe you can tackle from the side. 
But anyway, he just basically saw the gap, turned to me, and then just ran straight at me. And I sort of got him all right. But then poor Dali Rousseau was on the inside, and we absolutely steamrolled. And it was like watching like one of those, you know, you know primary school games where the one kid's are so much bigger, and the other one's got massive attitude, but he's on his back. And then he's poking his legs in between his legs to try and trip him over. That's exactly what it was. So obviously after that, the game got a bit fired up and I got a bit carried away because I never really shirked away from the physical stuff and then you know got a tackle or a challenge or like it's so clumsy. If you look back now, you think, what were you doing? But like it was all just because I was fired up and got banned for four games initially, which was a disaster because that was pretty much your World Cup and then luckily got reduced to two games and then um, which actually worked out all right for me. Um, um, so, you know, a bit of luck, but also... I think whenever you make these mistakes, you can't, there's no regrets, you can't take them back, uh, can you? But you definitely learn from them. You have to learn from them. And, you know, there's been a few of those learnings in my career. So I'm sure you'll get to a few others as this interview <laughs> continues. <laughs> Do you care to elaborate on that? <laughs> well, yeah. Yeah. I mean, obviously, 09 comes next, doesn't it? So 07, 09, the Lions. Um, I mean, what, what an experience for all of us. You know, we all remember watching 1997. I think all of us can remember, you know, um, Gibbs bouncing off the run. I think it was in Durban. And, you know, the box losing. And, you know, 12 years later, we get an opportunity. You know, it's more rare to play against the Lions for us than it is to play in a World Cup. You know, it's it's one of those moments that's there. So, uh, obviously, 09 came across. Um, Jake White finished in 07, 08. We had mixed success with Peter de Villiers in 09. I think we got a lot of things right uh, before the season started. You know, a lot of things where a new coach comes on board, you know, he's got his ideas, he wants to change a stigma or way you play. But I think in 07, we got a lot right for South Africans. And then 09, I think we were back on that sort of trend. I got in, missed the first test, I was injured, actually got injured in Super Rugby, missed the first one, stuck, stranded on 49 test matches. All I want to do is play my 50th test match. Second, obviously, first test match. Box, you know, dominated uh, the first 60 minutes of the game, and then the Lions had a very good last 20. We knew the second test match was going to be hard. Main focus, obviously, was just sort of more of the same for us, you know. So we obviously set pieces dominated. You guys, obviously, physicality is a non-negotiable. So would be the Lions team talk. You know, it's all about physicality, and you know, sort of um, 50th test match, a lot happening. Families up there. Um, just one of those moments where, if you look back now. You know, I gouge 10 seconds into, not even five seconds into the game. Luke's fit, Luke Fitzgerald, what was he doing in the ruck, by the way? I'm just joking. Um, <laughs> As and, a winger. In, in all seriousness. Yeah, in all, in, all, in all seriousness, you know, I mean, stupid. You, know, you get things wrong. And again, you know, if you look back now, it's, you know, overhyped moment, probably got a little bit too big. Because never in your life are you going to enter a game and think, shit, I'm going to, you know, I got someone. You just you just overstep the mark through too much build-up. You want to make too big of an impact too soon. You know, these things happen. So, um, obviously, I hope that doesn't detract from the fact that it was one of the best test matches ever. You know, that, that second test match delivered in spades and obviously culminated in Mourne Stain slotting a 60-meter penalty to win the test match for South, in a test series for South Africa. Uh, but yeah, a little bit bittersweet for me, you know, I spent about, um, geez, the following week just getting slated everywhere and then uh, got a little two-month sabbatical, so I was, I was banned for two months. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's one of those things, you know, like, you get it wrong, you know, there was, it was not, there was no intention before the game, it's just, you know, you learn from those things and I think after that you sort of, you sit back and think, okay, hold on. Where are we going? You know, what is the focus? Where should you move on? And, and and I think whenever you lose big games or you make mistakes like I did there, you come back a, you come back a better player from that. Yeah, certainly. And I, I think I think you've hit the nail on the head there. I don't think any player goes into a game, you know, with the intention of eye gouging someone or you know hurting an, an opponent. Like because ultimately, like, what's your end goal? Like even it actually happened again in the uh, Scotland Ireland game yesterday. One of the Scottish players accused one of the Irish players of of gouging, and 
I was just delighted to see that nothing came of it because it's it's very damaging, you know, to to your career if you get accused of something like that, and it's just something that kind of goes against the, the culture of the game. But you know, I think when you're fighting for every inch, you can get caught up in a moment, and 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 you know, it, it can it can look one way, but I think the the intention behind it is very different. On a lighter note, Skulk, all the Lions lads talk of that tour so highly. Um, and they said it was kind of the last of the real rugby tours. You know, the social media wasn't too big at the time. Um, for you, on the other side, how enjoyable was it in your own in your own home country? Oh, it's so special. It's so special. I think it's also one of the best supported just from, you know, demographically where we sit. Um, so we obviously fast forward to next year where it's Lions again coming 2021. Yes, there's a bit of a cloud hanging over whether it's going to continue or not. Um, we all hope it is. You know, if at worst it gets postponed for a little bit. But like we as South Africans can't wait. And you travel. What we love about it as South Africans, we're a rugby mad country. Everyone watches rugby. We grow up with a rugby ball. The first present you get from your dad, I guess, is a rugby ball. And what we can't wait for is the lives to come here. And it's the only long tour that exists in rugby. And South Africans, rugby is a community-based sport. It's a club sport. Everyone does it on weekends. Whether you're not playing for the Stormers or not, you're still going to your local club. The whole family goes and everyone plays rugby. Everyone runs around on pitches um, afterwards, beforehand, afterwards is beers. And that's what's the nice thing about the Lions tour. People get to interact with the team. They identify with the Lions coming here. And then on top of that, their local team, their local club side gets to play against the Lions, which they will talk about forever and ever. And everyone's going to remember that one big tackle he put in or the try he scored against the Lions. I mean, that's the biggest happening that can happen in anyone's life here. I mean, they only come here every 12 years. So I guess the Lions is example, I think, for world rugby and what a long tour could be for everyone really you know if we change the structure from these little week in week out tours like we do down here in the the southern hemisphere to a proper old tour we get the whole rugby community to buy in i mean it's the best thing so uh, you know south african tour i think is right up there just because we are so passionate about it it's such a big sport it's a big country we've got a lot to see you know, even from the Kruger down to the Winelands here in Cape Town, it's so diverse between Afrikaans, English. We've got 11 official languages. Um, so, yeah, I think it's one of the best tours to make with. And let's hope that, you know, by that stage, the world's you know, a little bit easier to get around in. And we've got a little bit of less regulations you know, to comply with. Because um, Alliance Tour in South Africa will be awesome. And whenever South Africa, you know, get one of these big tournaments if you think of 2010 Soccer World Cup and before that, you know, 95 Rugby World Cup or 96 Africa Cup of Nations. The whole country rallies around it and they really, really enjoy it and they, they put on a best foot forward and they really entertain their host with absolute warmth. I just think the, the South African supporters, you know, they're very similar to the Irish in, in that sense. They're, they're brilliant for getting behind their team and um, they're very welcoming people. I've, I've, I've been lucky enough to tour South Africa and, and be, um, I was on a family holiday there and I love loved my time there. I found the people so warm and uh, as you said, there's so much to see there. So yeah, please God that the tour does go ahead and I think it will be, you know, the highlight of 2021. Yeah, I think we, we all echo your thoughts. And I think the big thing here is everyone's fans. You know, everyone loves the game so much. So, you know, that, that really separates it, you know, from other countries. You know, we not often do you travel to a country where rugby is such a big thing. You know, it's normally, you know, a little bit behind other sports. Where you know, South Africa is one of those countries where it's really the premium sport. You know, although the national sport still soccer, it's a premium sport here in South Africa. I'm just going to echo what Ian just said there in relation to it's the fans. And the great thing about the South African tour is that the time difference is so easy, is so easily available and readily available to, I suppose, the entire world. And especially for, obviously, the British and Irish Lions, the time difference makes that tour easily watchable for everyone around around the country and around the UK. Um which adds to that excitement too in that there's a lot more hype around it. And is that excitement building already in South Africa about the tour? I mean, we, we're doing like a few, you know, normal corporate gigs here. And the only thing they can talk about is the Lions. You know, the Lions is the biggest thing happening 
uh, in South Africa over the next 12 months. That emitter, and don't forget, you know, the exchange rate. You know, it's very, very cheap for you guys to go down here and have beer and have wine and have food and have steaks. And then obviously we've got the climate. You know, the climate is also special. Uh, but yeah, you know, South Africans are absolutely throttling. Just remember, you know, we haven't seen the Springboks play. You know, the last time. You know, we would have seen the Springboks play in South Africa was our last test match we played here was against, I think it was Australia, Australia, maybe, you know, what was that, June, June 2019? You know, no international rugby this year. Yes, we're getting some domestic rugby without crowds. So that is, as you know, it's not the same. It's a little bit different. Everyone's sitting in their lounges watching the Bulls and Stormers play like they did two weekends ago. It's not the same. It's not an outing. You know, it's not that camaraderie, not that feeling, not the smell of going to Newlands watching a test match. So the Lions is massive for South Africans. They're craving to have live sport. They're craving to have the Lions, you know, the best, biggest tour in rugby to come to South Africa and stay here for six weeks and play against everyone. And then on top of that, you get your three test matches. So um, they can't wait. Yeah, it's been a real shame in the... um you know, in the year after winning the World Cup that you haven't, that, that the national team hasn't been able to play. You know, I was talking to Marcel Kutsia in, in the club about it. And, you know, they're, they're, every game that South Africa would have played after the World Cup would have been a huge game because the no matter who they're playing is looking to knock the number one team off their kind of their pedestal. Um, so yeah, I think I, everyone everyone wants to see that national team back playing as soon as possible. It's been so weird, hasn't it? Yeah. So, like, obviously, they've gone through their training camps to try and get across to be part of, you know, Test Match Championship. And then, you know, it just it, it didn't come through. So, yeah, we were, uh, I mean, all of us are bitterly disappointed not to see the box. Because also with that, in South Africa, goes a lot of, you know, positive reinforcement. You know, like, people forget quickly. You know, we we live in a country where, you know, we've got some struggles. You know, we're not... You know, we're not isolated in that. And then COVID happens on top of that, which makes it even harder. And then if there's one, you know, place where people can really relax and actually, you know, wear the heart on their sleeves and be proudly South African is when they watch the Springboks play. So, unfortunately, we haven't had that opportunity this year. But, you know, next year's coming. Maybe the Lions will happen. And then I think, you know, every South African will be supporting. Will there be pressure on the Springboks to perform and not having had a test game, an international test game in a year, you know, will they be ready for the challenge that awaits them? Yeah, there's always pressure on the box. Uh, the box. I think we've got challenges in between World Cups and that's why we battle to be so consistent because we've got so many players based everywhere. You know, we've got a new head, we've got new coaching staff. Also, we've got a new uh, head of strength and conditioning. And I caught up with him. He's in Cape Town. Um, I caught up with him briefly and he said, I can't believe where everyone's at. You know, they Japan, you know, the island, they Scotland, you know, they in the UK. Um, so it is a challenge for us because you just don't have access to your best players except in a World Cup year. But for next year, you know, all the players will pull in uh, for extended period of time and really fire up for the Lions. You know, everyone's waiting for that. You've got a few older players. You've got Francois Stein, for example. He's hanging on for that. I think he's imperative to the balance of the bench. You've got Dwayne Formillan. All these guys are coming back to South Africa. There's talk about Marshall maybe coming back for next year although I haven't heard anything. Um, but yeah, I mean, I guess there's massive pressure on the box, but also a brand new coach, uh, which doesn't make it easy. You played with Thea Khaleesi. Um, tell us a little bit about that and, and your experience playing with him. Um, yeah, I, I'm sure you guys have seen it around, but you know, when Sia was 14, I think we were, I was playing for the box. So that, that same week where I got injured, I was telling you guys earlier about when I had the neck problem. Um, and their photo uh, you know, surfaced when we started playing together. So he joined the Stormers in 2010. So he was obviously a youngster. 2011, he was a youngster. I was a little bit older at the time. And then this photo surfaced of me actually giving Sia you know, a signature uh, in 2006 um, you know, at grade P where he went to school. Uh, so I've, I've known Sia for ages. And, you know, like when he was younger, like more formative stuff, you know, just saying, listen, Sia, Let's try and get you a better rugby player. You know, let's try and you know make you a better human being. Let's try this. There was no doubt that he was always going to make it. Like he's super talented. Yeah, he's super talented. He's gifted. Also, one of the nicest blokes around. You know, he's a really, really nice guy. Grounded guy. 
understands where he comes from. Um, I guess, you know, a lot of life's been, you know, sort of shone on his background. You know, he watched, you know, 2007, um, you know, final in a in a pub um, or Shabin. Um, but I think, you know, what he's meant for South Africa is imperative. But I think what South Africa needs from him going forward is playing well and playing good rugby. Uh, and I think, you know, he's a charismatic leader, which is important in South Africa. You know, we've had statesmen in South Africa, Nelson Mandela, and no one forget you know, how impressive he was for our country and what he meant to us. Uh, and Sia, I think, is on similar trend. You know, he means a lot to South Africa. He unites the country, and the Springboks unites South Africa. So I guess we need him to play some proper rugby. We need the Springboks to play good rugby. But yeah, um, I know him very well, him and his wife, lovely people. We have each other over um, often for drinks down in Cape Town. Yeah, it's a small little community with Dania. So um, uh, it's it's lovely to know him. It's, I mean, it's lovely to see him doing so well. You know, it's, uh, it's been an absolute pleasure to watch. Absolutely. Well, Scott, I think it's time for our House of Rugby Challenge. So earlier on, we gave you a heads up about three items we wanted you to talk to us about. So we asked you to get a piece of rugby memorabilia, a jersey that you, you have swapped and held on to, and something non-rugby that you treasure. So we'll start off with the first one and a piece of rugby memorabilia. Okay. Um, I guess, I mean, we know where this heading. Eh? You guys, can you read that? Yeah, that's perfect. So, yeah, uh, final jersey from 2007. Um, obviously, uh, yeah, I mean, whenever you, you're in France for eight weeks and they basically, you don't speak any word of English and then you play against the English in the final and every Frenchman speaks English. That's what it was all about. <laughs> Uh, everyone wanted us to win that one. Obviously, super to be a part of it. Um, great memories, you know. Um, and then whenever um, you played the All Blacks and you've got a, a, a All Blacks jumper, I always treasured those ones because they never used to, back in the day, give them out just willy-nilly. Uh, they sort of gave it out to when there was your mutual respect and you'll do the same as a Springbok. So, greatest rivalry um, for us at least the Springboks goes back many years. And then, you know, of late, the, the All Blacks, obviously, you know, they've had the wood on us. But, you know, luckily the box every now and then turned them around. And I was fortunate to do it quite a few times. But I've got a, a number. We always you know, played a number six jumper. Um, so I've got a couple here. This one's actually uh, Jerry Collins. Oh, very nice. Very yeah, special. Very nice. You won't see the engraving. It's right at the bottom. And then I've got another one. Uh, and it's and it's the same. It's just Jerome Kana. Um, Excellent. So yeah, they're always special, eh? especially um, late night when one or two of your mates have had too much beers. They normally come out in uh, Jerry Collins or Jerome Kana's all black jumper, and they start making a few tackles <laughs> on the mates on the couch yeah, just inside. <laughs> Did you have to take them down from the wall? They don't hit as hard though. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Did you have to take those jerseys down from the wall, or are they hidden away now for future? No, they're hidden away at the moment, but everyone knows my cupboard so well. So, you know, late night, they just sort of open it. And then, uh, you know, we've got everyone. You know, we've got some English jerseys, some Argentinians. Uh, I've, got a, I've got a friend from Chile that always loves to wear um, a few Argentinians jerseys. And then you think the guys who always thought they were hard, you know, the hard men of the pub. Uh, they're normally either in my jumpers or, you know, as I mentioned, Jerome Cano or Jerry Collins' jumpers. Absolutely. And what is your something non-rugby that you treasure? Uh, I've got an old Defender, a 1997 Defender. A short wheelbase Defender. I absolutely love that thing. Um, my wife hates it. <laughs> um, and I bought it, geez, probably about 11 or 12 years ago. And every year I do something. At, so it's completely done up and I love it. I drive it everywhere. Uh, and um, I mean, she's absolutely petrified of the thing. We had Hugo Monye on a few weeks ago and it seems to be a trend with our, our rugby memorabilia that we treasure. He, he, he said his wife didn't allow him to have any rugby memorabilia in the house. So it seems to be a trend with, with the wives <laughs> on the show here. <laughs> yeah, I guess, I guess when you, you, know, you, we were together from the start, really, uh, me and my missus. But I mean, when you go to rugby matches for, what are the plays, 15 years? I, I guess it gets a bit tiresome after a while. So... You know, whenever I've got 
to have rugby memorabilia on the house might be a little bit overkill. And on top of that, she's an interior designer, so I'm not sure <laughs> you know, rugby dish fits into her spectrum. Into a good cage or something, you, you want to keep an eye on that. <laughs> yeah, like as as we speak, I'm actually busy just building myself like a wooden shed outside where I'm just going to put all my rugby stuff up. And uh, yeah, the only thing I really need there is just a proper keg, you know. You can start um, doing so, tours uh, and you can start charging then of your rugby memorabilia. No, no, I'll have it. I'll have it up and running by the lines to it, no doubt. Get Guinness to send you out a keg. Yeah, I know, I know. I can't wait. By the time Ian gets to go over to South Africa and play in the Guinness Pro 14, you can, he can take a visit to his, his shed. Well, he's more than welcome. I'll definitely give him a, a midweek luncheon um, that will follow into a dinner and it will be perfect prep for the Saturday against the Storm. <laughs> <laughs> I look forward to that. Scott, <laughs> it has been a no great problem. pleasure having you on. It has been so interesting to talk to you about um, all that's going on in South Africa and your experience with the Springboks and it, it really has been a pleasure to, to chat to you here today. Ian, thank you very much for having me. I know the sun's setting here. I was set out outside, but um, all the best with your winter and um, good luck with your rugby and can't wait for next year. It seems to be a big year in rugby. Thanks very much, John. It's been great having you on. Thanks very much. Thank you very much, guys. Cheers. House of Rugby Ireland, here on Joe, together with Guinness. Game changed. Cheers to everybody for watching and listening today. Don't forget you can continue to get involved in our Facebook group and on Twitter. A huge big thank you to everyone involved today. Producer Pat, Paul, Dermot, Ian, Anthony and everybody that helped getting this show together. This has been House of Rugby Ireland here on Joe together with Guinness. Slánga fó. live. Nailed it. House of Rugby Ireland here on Joe together with Guinness. Game changed.